0: Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. back this is episode 7 and the second part in the two-part series of William Bonin the Freeway Killer so we discussed a lot of things we discussed his highly dysfunctional childhood having been brought up by two alcoholic parents his father was abusive he gambled a lot of the family's money Bonin was sent to an orphanage at the age of six and there he endured further sexual and physical abuse He went on to molest young boys and teenagers, including his younger brother. He spent time in juvie for petty crimes. He had a brief marriage to a woman named Susan, followed by a brief stint in Vietnam where he raped two soldiers at gunpoint. And then starting in 1979, he began to terrorize Southern California, often picking up hitchhikers or luring boys into his death van, either solo or with his one of many accomplices. Then he would rape, torture, murder, and dispose of the bodies by various California freeways. So that is recapping part one. Let's dive into part two. Again, just an extra warning. This is a brutal case. We're not going to be covering as many of the actual murders because there's only a few left. Not that, I mean, that's plenty. But just as a heads up, there will be some very graphic details discussed. So according to investigator Jim Sidebotham, Quote, at the start of 1980, there were bodies coming in every two weeks. Long Beach was getting them, L.A. was getting them like crazy, San Bernardino was getting them, and Riverside was getting them. Okay, so we are going to pick up at March 24th, 1980, when Bonin and Pew abducted a 15-year-old runaway named Harry Todd Turner from a Los Angeles street. Turner had absconded from a boy's home in the desert community of Lancaster four days before meeting the two. Pugh was to later testify that he and Bonin lured Turner into Bonin's van with an offer for $20 for sex. After binding, sodomizing, and biting the youth, Bonin ordered Pugh to, quote, beat him up. After Pugh had bludgeoned and beat Turner about the head and body for several minutes, Bonin strangled the youth to death with his own t-shirt before discarding his body at the rear delivery door to a Los Angeles business. Turner's autopsy subsequently revealed the youth's genitals had been mutilated and he had received a total of eight fractures to the skull inflicted by a blunt instrument before he'd been strangled. On the afternoon of April 10th, Bonin abducted a 16-year-old bellflower youth named Stephen John Wood. As the youth walked to school, having attended a dental appointment that morning, his last words to his mother were, quote, See you later, alligator. Unfortunately, his nude, extensively beaten body was discarded in an alleyway in Long Beach, close to the Pacific Coast Highway. No clothing or other identifying evidence was discovered at the scene, and Wood's autopsy revealed the youth had been killed by ligature strangulation. Undoubtedly, his murder devastated and destroyed his family. His mother Barbara said, I live in a different world now. There's just too much to remember. His brother also became addicted to drugs in order to deal with his trauma. Three weeks later, while parked in the grounds of a Stanton supermarket, Bonin and Vernon Butts lured a 19-year-old employee named Darren Kendrick into Bonin's van on the pretext of selling the youth drugs. Kendrick was driven to Butts's apartment, where he was overpowered and bound by both men. In addition to enduring sodomy and partial ligature strangulation, Kendrick was forced to drink hydrochloric acid by Bonin, causing caustic chemical burns to his mouth, chin, stomach, and chest. Butts then drove an ice pick into Kendrick's ear, causing a fatal wound to the cervical cord. His body was discarded behind a warehouse close to the Artesia freeway, with the ice pick butts had driven into his skull still protruding from his ear. On May 12th, Bonin abducted and murdered a 17-year-old acquaintance or possible lover of his whom he later stated he had decided to kill when he had awoken that morning because he was, quote, tired of having him around. The body of this acquaintance, Lawrence Eugene Sharp, who Bonin once took to Knott's Berry Farm, a California theme park, was discarded behind a Westminster gas station. His body was found several days later, and his autopsy revealed that, in addition to being bound and sodomized, Sharp had been extensively beaten about the face and body, then strangled with a ligature. A week after the murder of Sharp, on May 19th, Bonin asked Butts to accompany him on a killing. On this occasion, however, Butts reportedly refused to accompany him. So operating alone, Bonnet abducted a 14-year-old Southgate youth named Sean King, from a bus stop in Downey, killed him, then discarded his body in Live Oak Canyon. Bonin then visited Butts's residence and bragged about the killing. King's mother pled with Bonin to tell police of her son's location so she could bury him for Christmas. He did reveal the location, but only because he knew that if he went out with the cops, they would buy him a hamburger. Nine days after the murder of King, Bonin invited 18-year-old homeless drifter, James Michael Monroe to move into the apartment he shared with his mother. Monroe had been evicted from his family's home in his native Michigan in early 1980 and had been living rough on the streets of Hollywood for several weeks. As such, Monroe readily accepted Bonin's accommodation. As had earlier been the case with Gregory Miley, Monroe was a bisexual who preferred sexual relations with females, but he also began a consensual sexual relationship with Bonin. He also accepted a subsequent offer of employment at the Montebello delivery firm where Bonin worked as a trucker. Monroe later described his initial impression of Bonin as being, quote, a good guy, really normal. Although on the evening of June 1st, Bonin abruptly informed Monroe he wanted the two of them to abduct, rape, and kill a teenage hitchhiker. By early 1980, the murders committed by the freeway killer were receiving considerable media attention. Reporter J.J. J. Maloney, who covered the story in the Orange County Register and coined the nickname the Freeway Killer, said, It appeared certain that a psychotic killer was on the loose. A kind of killer, once he starts, repeats and repeats and repeats. One killer, one spree. If the police wouldn't say it publicly, someone had to. At the register, we felt the public had a right to know that, more importantly, hitchhikers had a right to know that the next time they stuck their thumb out, they might end up strangled and abused. Bonin's sole surviving victim, David Vicker, recognized similarities in the way these boys and young men were being attacked. He told Nancy Grace later on that, quote, I kept reading the newspapers, and every time I would read these stories about these kids coming up dead, it was just it was like just in my stomach I could feel this. I knew what they went through. I finally called the sheriff's department and said, He's supposed to be locked up, but he's not. Forensic psychologist Dr. Albert Rosenstein profiled the killer. The guy who's doing these murders is crazy. The chance he's has been a mental patient at one time or another is very high. The killer is a strong, clever white man in his late 20s or early 30s. As a result of some traumatic sexual experience as a child, the killer has developed into a bisexual, but he has never become comfortable with the homosexual side of his personality. He cruises the streets in a van, looking for young white hitchhikers. Once his victims are drugged, he assaults them sexually in the back of the van. Once he's done that, he finds what he's done so repugnant that he feels he has to commit acts of sexual mutilation on the bodies after they've been killed. Police didn't want to hear about serial killer theories and told Maloney it was not uncommon to find strangled young men in the area, considering the large gay population. Schools were also warning students about the dangers of hitchhiking, and a reward totaling $50,000 for information leading to the conviction of the perpetrator or perpetrators had been offered by leading gay rights activists. Bonnen avidly collected newspaper clippings documenting his own manhunt. Having by this stage determined a definitive link between many of the murders committed within the previous year, Investigators from the various jurisdictions where victims had been abducted or discovered had themselves begun sharing information in their collective hunt for the perpetrator. Six officers from three of the jurisdictions in which the freeway killer had most regularly either abducted or deposited the bodies of his victims formed a task force dedicated to the apprehension of the suspect or suspects. By May 1980, Pugh had been arrested for auto theft and was housed at the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse. He overheard the details of the ongoing murders in a local radio broadcast and confided to a counselor his recognition of the perpetrator's modus operandi as being that described to him by Bonn two months previous. This counselor reported Pugh's suspicion to the police, who in turn relayed the information to an LAPD homicide sergeant named John St. John. Upon hearing the confidential tip, St. John conducted an extensive interview with Pugh. Although Pew withheld the fact that he had actually accompanied Bonin on one of his murders, the information he provided led St. John to deduce that Bonin may have indeed been the freeway killer. And as we said, McVicker had also contacted authorities by this time. His suspicions were not dismissed, but they were regarded as one of many tips to be investigated. A subsequent police investigation into Bonin's background revealed his extensive history of convictions for sexually assaulting teenage boys. Detective St. John assigned a surveillance team to monitor Bonin's movements. The surveillance began on the evening of June 2nd, 1980. And that same day, Bonin, accompanied by James Monroe, encountered an 18-year-old print shop worker named Stephen James Wells, standing at a bus stop at El Segundo Boulevard. Bonin and Monroe enticed the youth into the van, and upon learning that Wells was bisexual, Bonin persuaded the youth to accompany him to his apartment on the promise that he would be paid $200, if he allowed himself to be bound prior to engaging in sex. At Bonin's apartment, however, Wells was bound, raped, beaten about the face and torso by both men, then informed he was to be murdered, before he was strangled to death with his own t-shirt. Bonin then placed Wells' body into a cardboard box, which he and Monroe then carried to his van. The pair then drove to the residence of Butts, whom Bonin first invited to view Wells's body with the enticement, quote, we got it in the van. It's a good one. Come on out and see it. According to Monroe, Butts first showed him 21 ID cards in a closet and declared they were all victims he'd killed. Upon viewing the body, Butts replied, Oh, you got another one, before Bonin asked for advice as to how to dispose of it. At Bonin's subsequent trial, Monroe recalled Butts's response. Quote, try a gas station, like or where, I don't know which, we dumped the last one. Monroe also later testified that Butts had actively dissuaded Bonin from discarding the youth's body in the nearby canyons due to the late hour. Wells' body was instead discarded behind a disused Huntington Beach gas station, where it was found five hours later. Later that night, Bonin confessed to Monroe that he was the freeway killer, and that he would kill him if he tried to run away or call the police. "'I was just a stupid kid. If I'd known that 15 years to life meant I was never going to get out of prison, I would never have pled guilty. Hooking up with Bonham was a huge mistake,' Monroe later said in an interview with the Los Angeles Times. After nine days of surveillance on June 11th, police observed Bonham driving in a seemingly random manner throughout Hollywood, unsuccessfully attempting to lure five separate teenage boys into his van before succeeding in luring one youth into his vehicle.' The police followed Bonin until his van parked in a desolate parking lot close to the Hollywood freeway, then discreetly approached the vehicle. Upon hearing muffled screams and banging sounds emanating from inside the van, these plainclothes officers forced their way into the vehicle and discovered Bonin in the act of raping a 17-year-old Orange County runaway named Harold Eugene Tate, whom he had handcuffed and bound. According to CBS reporter Lopez, the police almost waited too long. This kid was in the throes of being strangled in the back of that van. Initially charged with the rape of a minor and held on suspicion of the murder of Miranda, Bonham was detained in lieu of a $250,000 bond. The following day, Monroe stole Bonham's car and fled to his native Michigan. Inside Bonham's van, investigators discovered numerous artifacts attesting to his culpability in the freeway killer murders. These items included various restraining devices, including links of nylon cord, an assortment of knives, a tire iron, and household implements such as pliers and coat hangers. Furthermore, both the interior of Bonin's van and sections of his home were extensively bloodstained, and the inner handles from the passenger side door and rear doors of his vehicle had been removed in an obvious effort to prevent the victims from escaping the vehicle. Inside the glove box, investigators discovered a scrapbook of newspaper clippings related to the murders. Although initially protesting his innocence in any of the murders, Bonin confessed his guilt to John St. John after reading an impassioned letter from the mother of King imploring him to reveal the location of her son's body. Over the course of several evenings, Bonin confessed to abducting, raping, and killing 21 boys and young men. He expressed no remorse for his actions, but he did demonstrate extreme embarrassment and regret over having been caught. His primary accomplice throughout his killing spree, Bonin stated, had been Butts, while Miley and Monroe being active accomplices in other murders. Bonin expressed no remorse for his crimes and later told one reporter who asked him what he would be doing if he were still at large, said, "'I'd still be killing. I couldn't stop killing. It got easier with each one we did.'" Allegedly, St. John later admitted to L.A. Deputy District Attorney Norris that it was him who had written the letter, not Mrs. King. Norris recalls that, quote, This guy was impassioned about what he did. He loved it. Listening to his confession was like sitting in a room of horrors. Here we are talking about killing kids, killing one and throwing him out like a piece of trash, and then going back to get another. It made me sick. Bonin was physically linked to many of the murders by blood and semen stains and, if you recall from Part 1, numerous distinctive green carpet fibers that were found upon seven of the victims' bodies, and these were forensically proven to be a precise match with the carpeting in the rear of Bonin's van. Furthermore, upon three victims' bodies, investigators had discovered hair samples which had proven to be a precise match with Bonin. Medical evidence also revealed that six of the murders for which he was charged were committed by a unique windlass strangulation method, which was referred to by the prosecutor at Bonin's L.A. County trial as a signature, a trademark. Initially formally arraigned for the murder of Grabs, a few days later he had been charged with an additional 15 murders, to which he had confessed and upon which the prosecution believed they had sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction. In addition to the 16 murder indictments, Bonin was also charged with 11 counts of robbery, one count of sodomy, and one count of mayhem. He was held without Bond, and on August 8, these charges were formally submitted. Three days later, he was appointed an attorney named Earl Hansen to act as his legal representative. Hansen remained Bonin's attorney until October 1981, when at Bonin's request, he was replaced by William Charvette and Tracy Stewart. Based on Bonin's confession, police obtained a warrant authorizing a search of Butts' Lakewood property on the same date as Bonin's initial arraignment. This search uncovered evidence linking Butts to several of the murders to which Bonin had already confessed, and Butts was charged with accompanying Bonin on six murders committed. He was also charged with three counts of robbery. And despite proclaiming his innocence, Butts confessed to having accompanied Bonin on each of the murder forays in each of the charges listed against him and to have actively participated in the sexual abuse of several victims. Butz was adamant he had only a limited role in the torture of the victims, but confessed to actively participating in the torture of one victim. Butz claimed he typically drove in an aimless manner as Bonin abused and tortured victims in the rear of the van, then stopped the vehicle in order to assist in restraining the victim as Bonnet escalated the torture. When asked as to why some victims had been subjected to more extensive blunt force trauma than others, Butts stated that, in many instances, Bonin would escalate the level of beatings to which he subjected his victim if the person resisted his sexual advances. So Butts was also formally charged with participating in three murders committed in more orange County beyond that. Monroe was arrested in his home of Port Huron, Michigan, then was extradited to California where he was charged with the murder of Stephen Wells. He pleaded innocent to all charges against him. Gregory Miley was arrested in Texas, where he'd fled upon learning of Bonin's arrest. He was arrested after confessing to his culpability in the February 3rd murders in a recorded conversation on the phone with a friend, thus substantiating Bonin's earlier confession. He initially pleaded innocent to two charges of first-degree murder, but formally pleaded guilty to both charges at two separate pretrial hearings in May 1981. At a preliminary hearing held in Los Angeles County before Superior Court Judge Julius Leatham on January 2, 1981, Bonin formally pleaded his innocence to 14 first-degree murder charges, numerous counts of sodomy, robbery, and mayhem. In 11 of these indictments, a felony murder-robbery special circumstances was also alleged. He was ordered to return to court five days later for pretrial motions and the formal setting of a trial date, which ended up being October 19. Prosecutor Aaron Stovitz, who was part of the team that prosecuted Charles Manson for the Tate LaBianca murders, called Bonin quote, the most arch-evil person who ever existed. Norris said, he was the leader and he chose weak people he could use. Bonin was the torch who lit the fire. Four days after his formal plea before Judge Leitham, Vernon Butts committed suicide by hanging himself with a towel in his cell. A subsequent coroner's investigation revealed Butts had unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life on at least four occasions prior to his arrest. His attorney theorized that his depressive state had been magnified by the impending release of transcripts of his client's testimony at the preliminary hearing, in which Butts had graphically described the torture the victims had endured before their murders. Prior to Bonin's trials, both Miley and Monroe had agreed to testify against him at both in exchange for being spared the death penalty. Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris also agreed to seek the dismissal of charges of sodomy and robbery filed against Monroe if he honored this agreement to testify. In the case of Miley, Norris agreed to accept two separate pleas of guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for two consecutive sentences of life imprisonment, with a possibility of parole after 25 years. Prior to his suicide, Butts never formally agreed to either testify against Bonin or to accept any form of plea bargain. Bonham was brought to trial in Los Angeles County first, charged with the murder of 12 of his victims, whose bodies had been found within this constituency. He was tried before Superior Court Judge William Keene. Initial jury selection began on October 19th, thus postponing the commencement of the trial, until 16 jurors considered satisfactory by both counsels had been selected. The actual trial began on November 5th. Norris sought the death penalty for each count of murder for which Bonham was tried, stating in his opening speech to the jury, We will prove he is the freeway killer, as he has bragged about it to a number of witnesses. We will show you that he enjoyed the killings. Not only did he enjoy it and plan to enjoy it, he had an insatiable demand, an insatiable appetite, not only for sodomy, but for killing. Norris further elaborated that Bonin had followed a depressingly familiar routine in his murders of luring and forcing his victim into the van before overpowering and binding his victim. He would then repeatedly rape his captive between and throughout instances of torture before finally reaching the, quote, climax of the orgy by killing his victim. Norris further asserted that Bonin considered murder a group sport and would typically groom people of low mentality to participate in many of his murders. Both Miley and Rimro testified against Bonin at his Los Angeles County trial, describing in graphic detail the murders in which they had accompanied him. November 17th, Monroe stated that shortly after the murder of Wells, he and Bonin drove to a McDonald's restaurant and purchased hamburgers with $10 taken from Wells' wallet. As they'd eaten the burgers at Bonin's home, Bonin laughed and mused, thanks Steve, wherever you are, before Monroe had also joined in the laughter. Miley testified to his participation in the murders of Miranda and McCabe, describing in detail how both of them were beaten and tortured with various instruments before their murders, and how he had, quote, heard a bunch of bones cracking as Bonin had pressed a tire iron against Miranda's neck. He continued his testimonies with the words, The kid vomited. I jumped down on him the same way, killing the guy. Several members of the audience rushed out of the courtroom as Bonin's accomplices delivered their testimony, later stating to reporters outside the courtroom that they found the details too nauseating. The strategy of Bonin's defense attorneys Charvette and Stewart was to challenge the credibility of numerous prosecution witnesses and to suggest that extremely significant mitigating factors as to the root causes of Bonin's behavior lay in the extensive physical, sexual, and emotional abuse he had endured throughout his early life. To support this contention, Bonin's defense attorneys summoned Dr. David Foster, an expert on the developmental effects of violence and abuse on children, to testify to the conditions affecting Bonin. Foster opined that Bonin had, as a result of repeated abandonment, not received the nurturing, protection, and behavioral feedback as a child necessary for sufficient psychological development. This had been so consistent and prevalent, he stated, that Bonin held a confusion as to the differences between violence and love. In a direct rebuttal, the prosecution summoned Dr. Park Dietz, a forensic psychiatrist and expert in both impulse disorder and sexual sadism, who testified that the overall pattern of Bonin's behavior was inconsistent with an inability to control his impulses. Dietz further testified as to Bonin's actions being reflective of planning as opposed to impulsive behavior. In summary, he concluded that Bonham was a sexual sadist and that although he had suffered from antisocial personality disorder, neither of these conditions had impaired his ability to control his actions. CBS reporter Lopez waived his previously sought immunity under California's SHIELD law and agreed to testify in behalf of the prosecution, sharing the details of seven interviews Bonham had granted him. Lopez stated Bonin had first informed him he would refuse to talk with any other reporter if Lopez would agree not to broadcast the precise details of the interview. He had agreed to these conditions, and Bonin had confessed to him on January 9th that he was the freeway killer and that he had killed 21 victims. According to Lopez, he had confided that although he resented the prospect of being executed, he had opted to kill repeatedly simply because he enjoyed the, quote, sounds of kids dying. Bonin informed him he had killed one victim by repeatedly punching him in the throat, and that the primary incentive for revealing the location of King's body to authorities had been the knowledge police would purchase hamburgers as they searched San Bernardino County for the remains. In his closing argument on behalf of the prosecution, Norris described Bonin as an insatiable, callous individual who acted with malice aforethought and who derives extreme pleasure from the suffering he inflicted upon his victims. Charvette began his closing argument, asking the jurors to find Bonin not guilty, calling into question the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses as well as their credibility. Charvette also reminded the jury of the extensive abuse he had endured as a child, as well as the diagnoses doctors at the Tescadero State Hospital had given him. But on January 6, 1982, the jury convicted Bonin of 10 of the murders, although he was not found guilty of the murders of Lundgren and King. Of committing sodomy upon grabs, of committing mayhem upon Lundgren, and of robbing one other victim. That said, as these verdicts were read, many relatives and friends of Bonan's victims wept openly. A few weeks later, the jury unanimously recommended he receive the death penalty. Judge William Keene, upon pronouncing this sentence upon Bonan, said he had a total disregard for the sanctity of human life and a civilized society. Sadistic, unbelievably cruel, senseless, and deliberately premeditated, guilty beyond any possible or imaginary doubt. Bonham was then ordered to be remanded to the warden of San Quentin State Prison to await execution in the gas chamber. He remained unmoved upon receipt of this sentence, having earlier informed his attorney he had fully expected to formally receive the death penalty. He was brought to trial in neighboring Orange County and was charged with the robbery and murder of four further victims. He was tried before Superior Court Judge Kenneth Lay. Prior to this second trial, Bonham was temporarily moved from death row and held in solitary confinement, where he remained until the conclusion of the trial. His defense attorney attempted to secure a change of venue, which was denied. He renewed this motion after jury selection, which was denied again. Eventually, the trial began on June 14th. The prosecutor at this trial, Brian Brown contended that all four victims killed within this constituency had been abducted while hitchhiking, then ordered to strip before being bound about the wrists and ankles. Each of the four victims had then endured rape, beatings, torture, and finally ligature strangulation. In each instance, the ligature had left an impression measuring approximately one-half of an inch upon the victim's neck. Brown also hearkened toward the similarities in each of these murders and two of those for which Bonnet had been convicted in L.A. County, Miranda and Wells. Particular emphasis was placed upon the fiber evidence found upon each of the Orange County victims, in addition to the three victims killed in the L.A. County, being a precise match to the distinctive carpeting in the rear of Bonin's van. In reference to the evidence found within the van itself, Brown stated to the jury, quote, one can truly say from the evidence found within the van, it is a virtual death wagon. These contentions were refuted by Charvette, who said that similarities in modus operandi did not constitute automatic proof of his client's guilt, and that the evidence presented did not support the prosecution's contention beyond a reasonable doubt that Bonin had murdered any of the four Orange County victims or the two victims in L.A. County. Charvet also questioned the credibility of the witnesses, particularly Monroe. Following less than three hours of deliberations, the jury found Bonin guilty of all four murders on August 2, 1983. Judge Lay, at the recommendation of the jury, sentenced him to death four times over a few weeks later. Bonin remained on death row for 14 years at San Quentin State Prison, awaiting execution. In his years on death row, he undertook both painting and writing as hobbies, and received several minor awards for his artwork, short stories, and poems. He also corresponded with numerous individuals, including the mothers of some of his victims. In this correspondence, Bonin never expressed any regret or remorse over having murdered their sons, and on one occasion he informed King's mother that her son had been his favorite victim as he was such a screamer. Bonin would later also claim that Butts had been the actual ringleader behind the murders and that he had simply been Butts's accomplice. Throughout his incarceration, Bonin filed numerous appeals against his convictions and sentencing, but each successive appeal proved unsuccessful. On February 20, 1996, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected a plea for clemency submitted by Bonin's attorneys on the grounds of inadequate legal representation at both his trials. In a final interview given to local radio station less than 24 hours before he was executed, Bonin claimed that he had made peace with the fact he was going to die. He added that his only real regret was that he had not pursued his teenage passion of bowling long enough to have turned professional. When asked whether there was anything he had to say to the families of the victims, he said, They feel my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. On this subject, then-Governor Pete Wilson referred to Bonham as, quote, the poster boy for capital punishment, before adding that California's method of execution ensured his death was infinitely more pleasant than that endured by his victims. On February 23rd, Bonham was moved from his cell to a death watch cell, where he ordered his last meal at 6 p.m. Two large pizzas, three pints of ice cream, and three six-packs of Coke, which honestly, not a bad choice. It's the only, only thing I'll give him that's a good last meal. His final hours were spent with his attorney, chaplain, and a prospective biographer, and each later said that he seemed resigned to his fate. His attorney also added that he had not detected any remorse in his client and at 11.45 p.m., Bonham was escorted from his holding cell into the execution chamber. In his final statement given to the prison warden one hour before his scheduled execution at midnight, Bonham again expressed no remorse for his crimes and left a note that stated, I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. I feel it sends the wrong message to the people of this country. Young people act as they see other people acting instead of as people tell them to act. I would advise that when a person has thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. What a bizarre thing to say. Bonham was pronounced dead at 12.13 a.m. He was 49 at the time of his execution. None of Bonham's relatives chose to witness his execution, though the event was witnessed by several relatives of the victims, many of whom wept and embraced when his death was officially confirmed. According to several witnesses, his execution passed without complications, and he was heavily sedated throughout the latter stages of the procedure. David McVicker, the youth who had survived the 1975 assault and partial strangulation at Bonin's hands, and who personally witnessed Bonin's execution, was initially traumatized by his experience, and he never discussed his ordeal in detail with his family. In the years immediately following the ordeal, he was haunted by nightmares, dropped out of high school, and began abusing drugs and alcohol. Nonetheless, he described the experience of observing the execution as being symbolic of closure and, quote, the beginning of my life. McVicker has actively campaigned to ensure that his two living accomplices, Monroe and Miley, will never be released. Monroe was sentenced to a term of 15 years to life for the second-degree murder of Wells, he repeatedly appealed his sentence, claiming that he had not known Bonham was the freeway killer until after the Wells' murder, and that he had been tricked into accepting a plea bargain whereby he pleaded guilty to his second-degree murder charge. He has also requested that he be executed rather than spend the rest of his life behind bars for what he claims is, quote, a crime he didn't commit, even though he boasted to several people on the days following the murder that the freeway killer would never be caught. Monroe has repeatedly been denied parole and is currently incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison. He is next available for parole in 2029. Miley was sentenced to a term of 25 years to life in 1982, initially incarcerated at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility and State Prison in Corcoran. He was later transferred to Mule Creek State Prison as well. Throughout the years of his incarceration, he was repeatedly reprimanded for violating prison rules, including possession of contraband drugs and attempting to engage in non-consensual sodomy with fellow inmates. In 2016, he died of injuries he had sustained from being attacked by another inmate in an exercise yard at Mule Creek State Prison. Pew was sentenced to six years in prison for voluntary manslaughter in the case of Turner, he served less than four years of his sentence and was released from prison in late 1985. A film depicting the murders committed by Bonn and his accomplices was released, titled Freeway Killer. And to wrap up this horrific story, Prosecutor Stovitz said, quote, Is there a lesson to be learned from this case? Yes. I would tell children, don't accept rides from strangers, either hitchhiking or gratuitous offers, be they from girls, boys, or in between. And I would tell parents, let your sons and daughters see the pictures of these murdered children. And that concludes part two the case of William Bond and the freeway killer. Very much happy to close the book on this case. And again, uh, my main source, which was Jack Rosewood's book. Okay, and for something beautiful this week, we are focusing on Neocutis Lumiere Illuminating Eye Cream. This is a fast-absorbing and intensive smoothing cream that gives skin a powerful moisture and nutrient boost. It does seem to alleviate under-eye puffiness and dark circles. And even after a single use, I um, recently purchased this with Amazon's Prime Day, and I've actually I've used this eye cream before and really enjoyed it. And it's it's not the cheapest, so that's kind of why. I, When I saw this opportunity on Prime Day, I was like, okay, we're going to jump for it. There's not a ton of eye creams out there that I think are exceptional, but this one you can actually tell a difference. It's um, free from colorants and fragrances. It's ophthalmologist and dermatologist approved, not tested on animals, and InStyle ranked it one of their 2020 best beauty buys, and InStyle always curates a great list, so that has that stamp of approval. But the key ingredients of Lumiere is growth factors, which is anti-aging, glycerin, which is moisture infusing, sodium hyaluronate, which is hydrating. Oh God, there's this acid. I There is no way I can pronounce that. Um, there is also caffeine, which reduces puffiness, a soothing ingredient, and vitamin C, which contains a- antioxidants. You can use this morning or night and you just sort of pat it in a pattern motion around the eye. You definitely don't want to rub this in and you go from there but it definitely does have that illuminating quality so highly recommend checking it out you can get it of course on their website you can get it on amazon as i mentioned Durham store would have this and i'm sure a lot of other places but again neocutis lumiere illuminating eye cream is is a winner especially on you know evenings like this where i'm recording late into the night Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for episode seven. You can follow Crime and Beauty at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. You can listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast. You can send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Would love to hear your feedback, case suggestions, rate and review, do all the things, please. I'd very much appreciate it and happy October. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful.